0: Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health, from mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damien. Welcome.
1: Michael Luter, thank you so much for joining us here on Channels of Health. This is Patty Giola along with Damien Skinner. And we are just very excited to have you join us today. Michael, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your educational background because it's pretty darned impressive. And then tell us the journey that brought you to where you are now.
2: Sure, thank you so much for inviting me today. I always enjoy the chance to talk about some of the work we're doing. So I got a joint uh, MD, medical degree, and a PhD in integrated biology, which is basically physiology from UT Southwestern. In 2003 and it was during uh, my third year clerkship uh, in psychiatry that I decided I wanted to go into that field. Um, I um, I think MD PhDs have a slightly different approach when I was going around all of the different rotations you do as a medical student. I wasn't thinking so much about you know what kind of medicine I would like to practice. It's like what kind of research do I want to do? Oh, you know, where okay. are the really yeah. interesting questions? And I thought psychiatry you either wanna be at the beginning of a field or the end of a field is what they always say. So, you know, the, the, the best beginning of the field I thought was psychiatry, which is literally probably a hundred years behind the rest of medicine with, okay. with our uh, you know approach, our diagnose, diagnoses, our treatments. Uh, probably the, the best end of a field right now is cancer, which is doing some really amazing work. But anyway, I, I digress. So um, I thought psychiatry had really great questions. There was a lot, um, that would kind of unfold in the course of my career. So I decided to go into psychiatry, and then I did a psychiatric residency. And during, so that was 2003 to 2007 at at UT Southwestern in Parkland. And it was during that time that I did a elective rotation at the the eating disorder program back at at Presbyterian, the old Presbyterian program. And that's when I really got interested in eating disorders. I knew a little bit about feeding and appetite and body weight regulation from my PhD years at UT Southwestern so back then i just kind of very naively thought you know i'll take that knowledge and just kind of explore what's going on in patients with eating disorders because it was very clear that it was to me at the time that it, there's a strong genetic and biological component um, and that by understanding that we would have a much better idea of what's driving the illness and how to treat it so i ended up going on to i did a, a, some postdoctoral work at ut southwestern with eric nessler and joel elmquist and then joined faculty in 2008 I was on faculty there 2008 to 2012, and then got recruited to University of Iowa. I was on faculty there 2012 to 2016, mainly doing basic science work. So we would do human genetics and identify mutations that cause eating disorders, and then we would put those mutations into mice. We could study the mice behavior and then the changes in brain chemistry and function.
3: And that's considered basic, what you were just talking about? That's-
2: well, it's basic in that it's not clinical. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's not easy. Okay, I was like, man. (laughs) But it's... (laughs) Not primary school. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's what they sort of call basic science and then clinical. Gotcha. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble once because I was... (laughs) I I said I would do a a lecture for the psychiatry residents, and I would do a a basic science lecture. And they're like, we don't need basic science. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it, it, it's not basic, it's, you know. Not that kind not of basic. Not that kind of basic. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and then I transitioned out of that. There there were changes in the way that they do reimbursements for medical scientists, and it made it very hard to do research and see patients, um, so I ended up transitioning out of academic work, and then have been doing clinical uh, work mainly. I don't do basic, you know, I don't do neuroscience research anymore, but then In the last year or so, really within about the last six or seven months, the price of genetic sequencing has dropped to the point where I can now do whole exome sequencing for under $500. So for under $500, I can sequence the DNA of all 21,000 genes for a person and analyze it. Um, So it's gotten to the point where it's now clinically applicable. And that's what I've mainly been focusing on the last few months.
1: It's kind of crazy, isn't Holy it? Holy cow! I got to process that.
3: So you're saying for 500 bucks, someone can come in and get their, how do you say it, dude? I, it's called. A whole I'm a marketer. Zone. So,
2: okay. <laughs> you know, you're, to give you a, an idea of the scope, you're, each nucleus in your cell has three billion nucleotides of DNA. So, uh, four letters: A, T, C, or G. Right. Right. That would be the equivalent. There's about three million letters in the king. James Bible. So it'd be about a thousand copies of the King James Bible worth of information in every cell in your body. Oh. Right. So well, only about 1% of that codes for the proteins. Um, you know, the, you know, the hemoglobin or the collagen or, you know, all of that stuff. Um, there are 21,000 different genes that code for the, the pro- most of them are protein coding. And so that's only about 1%. So for about a thousand to 1500, you can get the entire 3 billion um, pairs, uh, uh, sequence. And then for just the the coding protein, it's about 500. It's a little under 500. Wow.
1: So do you have to specify what you're looking for? We were talking about that earlier. Is it like blood work where you have to say before you get the test that you're looking to do a hormone panel or a food allergen panel? So when you're doing,
2: they they sequence the whole exome. I I do have to fill out an order form and tell them what I'm looking for, but that's just a formality.
1: So So you find an awful lot of information in there above and beyond what you're signing up to say, this is what I'm looking
2: for. I do. I find a lot of information. (laughs) I mean, this is generally applicable to all kinds of other things, but you know, I'll sometimes find, you know, the breast cancer gene or, you know, the cystic fibrosis gene, you know, people have those variants and I'll, I'll tell them, you know, I'll ask them if they want to know about that.
3: So I have to dig in on that a little bit more. So again, complete novice. Okay. I'm a documentary filmmaker. So I don't understand most of the words you're using. That's why I'm here is to make sure people listening, I represent those people uh, that don't have any knowledge of this. So when you say that you find you, when you get this done, how do you get the information? I mean, that's what's so curious to me. What do you get back that you're able to look at and see a breast cancer gene?
2: Um, I have the bioinformatics done, so they do the the variant calls. Um, I, I won't get into technically how it's done. Okay. <laughs> That's probably more than people want to know. Sure. What I end up getting is a spreadsheet that has about 160 to 175,000 mutations on it. Um, so I can't go through all of that. So there's a algorithm I use to narrow that down to find the mutations that are most likely causing disease, in okay. my case, the eating disorder. That gets me down to about four to 500. And then... From there, I, I do hand-curate the uh, the final four to 500. I go through each, and I look at every gene mutation. And then from that, I will pull out what I think are the most likely the uh, mutations that are causing the eating disorder. Wow. And I can, most of the time, almost all the time, I can get it down to two or three, and most of the time I can pick out the one that I think is doing it.
1: So you're picking out the one mutation. Yeah. And what are you finding... In that in that research, because part of what you were sharing with me the other day was this new research and what you're able to get as you as you, as you go. Yeah.
2: So what's really interesting about eating disorders are you know we, we know they're mostly inherited. So the risk is you know some well the risk is estimated for anorexia bulimia and binge eating. I don't think I've seen a risk assessment for arfid or OSFID, but um, for those you know the risk is like fifty to eighty percent. Right. You're about five times more likely to have a first degree relative with an eating disorder if you have one, to give you an idea, right? And and that's the case for all um, psychiatric disorders. They're mostly from uh, genetic. So that's, um, anorexia would be similar to say autism, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. bipolar disorder, and more inherited than you know major depression. So what's interesting though is that there's what we call common risk and then um, private risk or, or rare risk, right? So, what we find is that the majority of the risk for, especially autism and eating disorders and schizophrenia, are, are not common. So, they're not things that are shared across the population. They're specific to small families, right? Um, so, Whether it's psychosis, you know, with schizophrenia and bipolar or it's eating problems or, you know, social problems with in language problems with autism, it's literally thousands or millions of different diseases that run in families that all kind of present with a similar finding, but are unique and different. Right. And we know that in eating disorders. Right. We only have five diagnoses. You know, you've got your anorexia and then they designate that as binge purge or restrict. You've got your bulimia. You've got your binge eating. You've got ARFID now. And then Osset is our catch-all, but we know everybody's illness is different and, and unique, right? right? And those categories are completely artificial. We lump mm-hmm. them together, but we know that that's not the biology of the illness. So what we find is that everybody's illness is um, different, unique, you know, clusters together in families often. This is about 40, 50% of the cases um, are like this. It's not everything. and we can now start to pull out these individual mutations, especially if it does run in a family. So, you know, if it's in like, you know, this morning I was working on a case of a mom and two daughters, and I found that mutation that I think is causing their illness. But I see stuff like this all the time. We have got a a mom with three daughters, uh, you know, um, a mom, or my patient and her sister and her mother and, and this kind of stuff. So you can start to find, you know, these mutations tracking the illness. And then that tells you a lot about the biology. The underlying biology of the illness.
1: So can you give us some examples? I know that you take this information and it helps to inform you in your precision medicine practice. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit about what that practice looks like and how the studies can help you?
2: So our absolute best outcome so far is for bulimia. So in the original study, we found that we had 39 patients with bulimia and four out of the 39 had mutations in a hormone called GLP-1 or in the receptor for GLP-1. So GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide 1, and it is released by your intestines. It's called a satiety hormone, Um, and it also um, helps secrete insulin. So after you eat, there are special cells in your intestines. So as you start to absorb nutrients, your cells start to release these hormones. Um, They're called incretin hormones and glp1 is the primary one and it goes and it causes insulin release and it sensitizes insulin action at like muscle and liver and adipose tissue so you start storing energy and then it goes back to the stomach and it slows down the release of food from the stomach Um, but most importantly they're loaded in your brain and your in your reward system and it's probably the most powerful appetite suppressant that we found so far and it goes back and it completely shuts off your appetite so people who have deficiencies in the hormone or the receptor are never sad. Sati- they're, they're never satiated. They're never full. Mm. They think about food. You know, my, my patients will say, I think about food 70, 80% of the time. I'm always hungry. I was always the kid who went back for seconds. Um, where the bulimia comes in is that there's this disconnection where they eat to the point of being really uncomfortably full. You know, they have all this physical distan- distension, but their brain's like you're still hungry. Keep eating. And the only, way that they can kind of resolve that conflict is to throw up so that in, just last night I was talking to somebody and she's like, yeah, I throw up. Cause I want to keep eating, you know, right. and this is yeah. the only way I can do it. So this is not everybody, you know, we found it was about 10% of our cases. And that was a small sample, but there were two studies that showed GLP one levels are lower in patients with bulimia. So it's probably is a subset of patients with bulimia. It's due to the lack of this hormone. And, um, what's exciting is there are, two drugs on the market that um, mimic this hormone one's approved for diabetes and one is approved for weight loss and we can go back and give these people this drug and it's literally almost an instantaneous cure to their bulimia you know they'll go you know we've had people who are binging and purging you know eight to ten times a day for ten years they've been to multiple treatment centers and within a week they'll completely stop it's, it's really true. I never thought I'd see anything like it in psychiatry. It's truly remarkable. Now, this isn't everybody. You know, this is, a, like I said, a subset of patients. But when we can find cases like that, um, it, it's really an incredible outcome.
1: And so it is all really, in those cases, primarily tied to biology and not psychiatry. Do they need any follow-up? In those
2: cases, yeah.
1: Yeah. So they don't need any consultancy I always recommend therapy. You know, yeah. if you've
2: ever had an illness like that that's completely yeah. disrupted your life, you true. know, um, you know, cancer patients, you know, the therapy is not curing the cancer, but the therapy helps with dealing with the the psychological baggage of it. We've had to teach some people how to re eat. You know, they did, they have no idea how to make three meals a day, you know, because they were literally binging and purging continuously for years. Um, So I always recommend therapy. I'm a huge fan of therapy. I'm a, um, but in this case, yeah, the primary treatment is going to be biological.
1: That's pretty remarkable.
3: Is the goal here, I'm going to go into even a broader question. The goal behind your work, is it, like, bulimia, is that the best example of what you're looking for? Like, actually genetic solutions to things that were, until now, really considered just to be psychological problems? Or, like, what's the big goal for you in this work? Is it to find the genetic cures?
2: Well, first of all, we don't have any genetic treatments in that we're not, like, Rewriting people's DNA. Sure. Right, <laughs> okay. right. What I call it is genetically informed treatment. So we use genetics to identify biological pathways that might be altered and contributing. Um, I think you're, you know, within the field, we certainly know that it's a combination of biology and environment. Hmm. Right. Right. Um, but that varies. There are some people where it's more biologic and there's some people where it's more environmental. And, and that's a spectrum. I, these rare damaging mutations tend to be more biologic okay okay so i'm not like claiming that i can cure all of anorexia or sure. you know understand sure. all of it i'm picking out one you know small cases at a time now these biological cases they tend to be more severe they tend to cluster in families you have a younger age of presentation you have a higher representation of males they tend to have lower body weights and, and are less responsive to treatment so it's a it's a group of population that tend to, in general to be sicker i found um, so from that perspective, oftentimes you, uh, coming in with a new approach is helpful to augment the, the traditional treatments. Okay. Um, you know, in anorexia, we, we find a lot about anorexia. Um, there are probably four or five different neurotransmitters uh, that we're seeing clusters in. So we've seen a lot of people with mutations in pathways that affect glutamate um glutamate is a is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain and it's also involved in like anxiety especially ocd and and depression so all so we see a cluster there we see clusters in cannabinoid so um you you know most people know about marijuana the reason marijuana works is because your your brain also makes cannabinoids they're called endocannabinoids um, and, and they're not as potent as marijuana, right. but, but your brain makes endocannabinoids, okay. and those that are involved in things like appetite regulation and pain tolerance and stuff like that. So we've seen several patients with mutations in, in cannabinoid pathways, with opioid pathways, and then um, the other really big one are what are called these neuropeptide transmitters. Mm-hmm. So there are neurotransmitters that are actually made from genes they're proteins that are made peptides, they're not proteins. They're peptides that are made from genes and then expressed. And there's several different classes of them, but the one that we primarily see are what are called gut-brain peptides. So in the uh, gut, they're involved in regulating meta- or, um, digestion and absorption of food, gut motility, um, things like that. And then in the brain, they regulate appetite and, and body weight regulation. So we, in, in a lot of these cases, especially like um, binge purge type of anorexia, we see a lot of people clustering in these gut-brain pathways.
1: So you mentioned something that I wanted to talk about anyway, and so it makes it a little bit of a segue, the comorbid issues. Are you primarily trying to just research for people that essentially have an eating disorder as their primary problem, or do you also include people that might have other substance abuse or mood disorder issues along with eating disorder? And if yes, how does that complicate things?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I, I've done mostly eating. Um, I have a few people I look at with sleep and bipolar, uh, mostly around circadian rhythms. I've not looked at mood, anxiety, um, schizophrenia um, psychosis uh, or autism very much yet. Um, in, there's a couple of reasons for that and the, the the biggest reason is i just don't have a lot of sequencing data for that right so part of what makes this really exciting is the more cases you get the more power you have so now when i go through somebody's dna and find a variant then i can go back to all the other sequencing and then see if we can find other cases of that right so we found two things just in the last few months where You know, I had this really ill patient I've been working with for years, and we finally had a chance to sequence her DNA, and I found what I thought was causing it, and I could go back in, and we find two more cases. So then um, I contact a researcher who studies this this gene, and he was really interested, and I told him what the mutations were, and he could then put the mutations into the gene in the basic science lab, and, and, and he could show that the mutations were damaging to the protein. So at that point, you're, now you're really convinced, right? You know, three out of our 60 cases of anorexia had this mutation, and the mutation was damaging, and it's in a, it's in a signaling pathway that's involved in, in gut motility and appetite regulation. So that was really real. We found another two families, and then a third, what we call a sporadic case. So it was a mom and three daughters, and then the other case was a, a, a mom and her sister and her mom. And we haven't tested everybody yet, but so far everybody we've tested has a mutation in the same gene um, that is involved in, uh, like, estrogen receptor signaling. Wow. Um, And interestingly, they all have this this phenotype where they, phenotype, they all have this symptom where they lose their period very easily. So they tend to either have a late uh, start to their period, you know, like 16, 17, 18, which is Kind of late right. or they um, lose their period very easily, um, which would be consistent with, you know, this estrogen receptor. Interesting. thing.
3: So this kind of goes back. You were talking about uh, you want to be early. What was it? You said you want to be early to a field, early
2: to a field or late to a field. Yeah.
3: So you're really in the early days of even getting like a database for lack of a better term. Um,
2: yeah, I don't know anybody else. They're probably Well, there was this one group in France, I guess, who's done this a couple of times, but I don't know anybody else who's doing this. Wow. They're researchers. I don't know any clinicians who do this. Right. Wow. Because so, nobody gets the training. Yeah. <laughs> I had to you know, spend eight years in, in academia to learn how to do this.
1: Well, that's a good, that's a good distinction. Mm-hmm. So when you're saying this, that nobody else is doing what you're doing, using genes to help develop precision treatment.
2: People do. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. There are lots of people who do that. There are lots of researchers um there are you know companies that look at what are called pharmacogenomics where you look at how the genetic variants that predict how your body metabolizes drugs.
1: Right. Yeah. So
2: that's you know, like gene side and geomine and all those. Mm-hmm. So that's very common. That's pretty mainstream. But in terms of actually finding gene mutations that we think are causing the illness, um that is really in its infancy. Wow.
1: So if you want to fast forward 20 years from now, what are we going to, what kinds of things will this inform us, or how will we better be able to diagnose, treat, maybe even prevent some of these illnesses?
2: The way things are going now with the computing power and the sequencing, you know, at some point you'll be able to sequence the DNA of a, of a baby, and I think it'll probably, it, nothing's going to be 100 percent. or maybe a few things, but it'll give you like a risk. You know, I'll right. say, you know, you have an increased risk of this uh, illness. Um, and, you know, hopefully it'll help with prevention, you know, um, early detection and early treatment of, of lots of different diseases. And th- the question is, I de- I'm not sure how it's gonna affect treatment um, in terms of like developing new treatments. Okay. You know, there's this hope, you know, in anorexia or bulimia or binge eating or whatever, that you're gonna find this one drug that like, treats everybody. And what we're finding is that's really not the case. Right. And I don't know that drug companies are gonna be all that interested in developing hundreds or thousands <laughs> of different treatments. Right. You know, I, I, you usually have to have it be present in a fair number of people in order to get a drug company's interest just because it's such a huge effort to create a drug and test it and bring it to market. Um, what I do is called repurposing so the the typical process uh so repurposing of drugs that are already on the market right okay so the the glp1 receptor agonists are the best example of that because we took a drug that was on the market for something else and we we have repurposed it for use in bulimia um so what i'll do in other areas is i'll find a biological pathway that i have some interest in and then we'll try to do testing on it you know we'll try to like show that There are, in fact, disruptions in that biological pathway, right? So, if I find a mutation in, say, a circadian rhythm gene that I think is causing a sleep disturbance or or, uh, a bipolar illness, you know, we can measure circadian rhythms. I can look at your body temperature, you know, we can look at your sleep wake cycles and all of that, and that would then help give us some evidence. And there are some things that we can do otherwise. Um, You know, these people with uh, some of the people with uh, the cannabinoid receptor mutations. Uh, we'll have alterations in, like, lipid panels, and we can look at their, their, you know, different lipids in their blood and things like that. So, I, like I said, we're not treating the genetic variants. What we're doing is we're just trying to identify potential avenues of treatment. So, one of the things is to try to find evidence supporting it, you know, like, um, uh, like again, coming back to this cannabinoid mutation that we found in a, in a patient. Um, it's known to evolve, in fact. Or affect uh, like pain tolerance. There are mm-hmm. these rare cases of people who have, have like extraordinarily high pain tolerance, and they can have like surgery with like no, yeah. you know, medication or whatever. So I asked the patient, I'm like, do you do you have a low pain tolerance or high t- pain tolerance? And she's like, i I'm, <laughs> Most people think I generally have a high pain tolerance. So we're always like trying to find things like that. Uh, we found a, a, a patient with a mutation in a uh, op- opioid receptor. You know the opioid receptor and i'm like you know do you have weird reactions to pain meds and they're like oh yeah like i have these really like bizarre reactions when i when i you know when i had my kids and they gave me pain meds right i got i had this really bizarre reaction so we're always like trying to find evidence that there is something going on with that pathway and then you just repurpose drugs that are already you know maybe involved in that pathway or something in order to to try to treat it Um, a lot of the times we are able to find things Uh, sometimes there's just nothing we can do
1: Well, that's a painful...
2: Yeah, especially in the receptor mutations. Those are are tough. Yeah. So we just found a new binge eating disorder gene the other day, and it looks like the drug that typically works on that pathway, it won't work because it's in the receptor. So now we're, like, trying to go down from that, you know, one step down and then Uh, come back in. Um, Unfortunately, that that drug is, like, $13,000 a year. Right. I'm, like, trying to find a way to get... Insurance to pay for it, that's been the... Not so much. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what they say. Or get them, I'd really like to get them into a, a trial, you know, see if, if there's, like, a trial studying it. So. Right.
1: Well, is, is there a good likelihood that that could happen?
2: I hope so, yeah. Um, I'm, I reached out to the company. I haven't heard back yet, but I know they're doing all kinds of, of trials. So if we could find um, some new treatments... Um, I think that would be ideal for a lot of people. Absolutely. Let me ask
3: you a follow-up question. Uh, A little bit ago you were talking about when you get this back, you have to use an algorithm just to get it down to like the 500 to 600. That algorithm, is that something that you guys created yourself? Uh, How does that work?
2: Yeah, this is something that my, um, I'm not a human geneticist by training, but I had a colleague at Iowa that I worked with and he, He developed it. No, right on. Very cool. Um, So basically what you do, it's not terribly complicated, but basically what you do is you look at, um, we had a group of patients with eating disorders, and then we could look at which genes were more likely to have damaging mutations clustered in them versus uh, a control population of like 67,000 people that's publicly available, right? So it was basically just the statistical argument, mm-hmm. and we could get this list, you know, of genes, and it, what was it, it was like 150 for anorexia and like 250, so about 1%, 1% of the genes for uh, binge eating. And the list was basically we are, you're more likely to find mutations in these genes in people with an eating disorder than in the general population. And then from there we had to, to see the biology. Okay. So when you see like both the hormone and the receptor, like we did with GLP one, like that's really convincing, right? Oh. Like the chance of just randomly <laughs> picking out a hormone that's involved in the appetite and its receptor. Right, right. Like when I saw that, I was like, man, this is exciting. Yeah. I still remember that day. <laughs> um,
3: so if it's, it's a, if this and this, then this kind of.
2: Yeah. It, it's kind of, I, I almost think of it as like uh like I'm a lawyer or maybe not like a real, like, like what lawyers really do, but the TV lawyers, you right. know, like <laughs> arguing my case. You know, and if I, you know, I'm always, like, trying to put a case together to convince, you know, like, a, a skeptical jury. You know, I, I try to be the skeptic myself, but, like, what would I need to convince yeah. myself that this is yeah. real? Yep. You that, know, so
1: That's a good way to look at it. It is I, a I, defensible
3: I, position. I, that you yeah. Can, yeah.
1: Quite a few years ago, I think people, um, the ordinary public, had sort of this idea, although it never was true, that we are going to find the breast cancer gene we're going to find the gene. So talk a little bit about the fact that there's so many genes that you're looking at. It's not just a singular this is the eating disorder gene.
2: Yeah. I'll I'll tell you anything that's caused by one gene has been found Mm. because it's pretty easy to do. Good point. point. So everything we have left is what is called polygenic which means that there are hundreds thousands of, of different mutations in the population that all contribute to the risk. And then there's usually an environmental component to that, right? So, whether it's hypertension, or cancer, or autoimmune disease, or whatever, it's the gene makes you more susceptible to that, and then, uh, but you've got to be put in, in the right environment, right? You know, perhaps alcoholism is the, the best example. You know, there are certainly genetic mutations that increase the risk of becoming. Uh, Dependent on alcohol, but if you happen to live, you know, in the middle of a country where there is no alcohol, you would never know that. Right. Um, if you happen to go to a state school, you know, and join <laughs> a fraternity, you're gonna find out really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that could become an issue. You know, and we know <laughs> in eating disorders, that's certainly the, the case. Probably the most common vulnerability in in anorexia is um, that people respond differently to in negative energy states. Um, than the general population, right? So most the reason most diets don't work is because as you start losing weight, there are all these mechanisms that turn on in, in your brain, right, you think about food all the time, mm-hmm. you uh, work harder to get food, you make higher calorie choices, you eat more. Um, those don't seem to turn on in, in patients with eating disorder, your, your metabolism lowers, things like that, those don't seem to turn on in patients with eating disorders. So as, you know, they're exposed to, say, um, you know endurance exercise you know whether it's you know swimming or long distance running or ballet or something like that or they're on a restrictive diet they just respond differently than the general population and 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 they start to lose weight and then it starts to reinforce this becomes this reinforcing cycle and it kind of goes out of control again i'm over generalizing sure you know this is the most common thing but you know the other thing we found is that there's probably a subset of people with anorexia where it's due to inflammation you know we found this cluster in, in inflammation in these patients have are probably have some kind of low-grade inflammatory disease where it just so happens that, you know, we know infl- inflammation suppresses your appetite, you know, whether you have the flu or cancer or, or whatever, and they probably have chronic low-grade inflammation. They tend to have much more severe depression, depressive symptoms, um, very low energy, a lot of lethargy, they don't eat very much, but um, very low OCD, you know, which would be consistent. So. Again, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, um, but as we do more of the genetics, we start to see patterns emerging.
1: So, I think this is fascinating. I, I, I really appreciate you coming in, Michael, and you are very good with how you're explaining For it sure. too. I, yeah. I think that I think the average listener is going to say, "Oh, I, I do get that." So, a couple of things. You know, this uh, chronic low-grade inflammation—I really hadn't thought about that before, but that that does make some sense. What kind of treatment would you suggest for something like that? Because if we can begin to identify some of these. Yeah.
2: Um, I, you know, I always do, when I see people, I always try to do good medical history and see if there are comorbid auto, you know, history of autoimmune diseases in the family or often the patients will have autoimmune diseases, especially like inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis or stuff. And if I see that, you know, I'll try to order like an inflammatory panel looking at some of the markers of inflammation. Um, I don't, honestly, I don't get great success. Sometimes it'll come back, you know, as mildly inflamed, and then we'll know to go more along that pathway of trying to more aggressively treat their illness. Um, I know a lot of people, not a lot of people, I know some people who are working on this kind of stuff, um, and hopefully they'll be able to start pulling out some of these subsets of patients who have these, um, you know, more of an inflammation kind of profile. I get that. I don't think we know what the... I don't think we have a good sense of what the – a lot of the pro-inflammatory molecules are appetite suppressing. I don't think we know which one is causing it, or it could be several.
1: When when you get to a point further down the line where you're identifying risk and you can tell somebody you're probably at risk, or your daughter or your kid or your spouse is at risk, is there some kind of – Counsel that you could offer to a family member, how to help somebody manage that risk so that they have a lesser chance of developing an eating disorder.
2: That's a good question. So everybody I have worked with so far has a disease, and we're really looking to try to find treatments for the disease. But it it has come up, and it is going to be a case where somebody's like, "Um, "Well, I've got my kid. Should we get my kid tested?" and I know that's gonna happen at some point. And then, you know, if we do find a, a, a patient, you know, whose child does have that variant, at that point, you know, you would just do the traditional genetic counseling of it's, you know, this is not hundred um, percent, you know, it's something to be, to keep an eye out for and, you know, possibly, you know, avoid situations in which we'd be more likely to trigger an eating disorder. Um, genetic counseling, is that a thing? Which, oh, yeah. That's awesome. It's a entire field. Yeah. Just never yeah. even... Not in psychiatry so much. It's mostly in other fields. Yes. More, that's me- more medical. That's what I've been understanding. Genetic medicine. counseling.
3: Yeah. yeah. Which literally means, here are the results, and we're going to talk you through how you should view these results? Yeah. Okay. Because I would think some people could really be fairly destructive with this information. Like, um, sure. obsessing over something that may never, ever happen, but you have a yeah. you know, I mean, like
2: In psychiatry, the... The classic example is Huntington's disease, mm. right, where it's it's like an early dementia that, that comes on, and each generation it comes on earlier. Um, so, and, and we know that mutation, that is in a single gene called Huntington. Um, so a lot of, you, you know, if a parent has it, you know, you've got a 50-50 chance of having it as well. And then some people want to know, and some people don't want to know. Yeah.
1: Right, sure.
2: So. That does come up a lot from time to time.
1: Talk a little bit about your specific practice, because you are, I don't know if it's unique in that combination, but there's not a lot of people that do get the combination MD, PhD. So if you could for a moment talk about what you do and how you connect with the public or the population that you can help.
2: Uh, yeah. there. I think... When I went through, there were about 140 MD PhDs a year through the, what's called the MST per MSTP program, medical scientist training program. So that's the one sponsored by the NIH. And then other people will get both a PhD and an MD separately. Right. So there are more MD PhDs than, than than just those. I don't know what the number is now. So it's not very many. I mean, it was when I went through medical school. I think it was like 16,000 medical students a year. So you know, you're talking like one percent. Right. Um, so in, in our field there's not, there's some obviously, most of them are, are in academia. Um, most of the MD-PhDs are academic. Um, Dallas actually has kind of a cluster, we have you know, both Kerry McAdams and Brooks Broderick. Right. So we joke that we're, when we have dinner together or lunch together, that we're, you, it's very rare to get three MD-PhDs together. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, we, we, I, you have to be careful out there. We don't want anything to happen. Yeah. To, you yeah, you represent, yeah, that's right. Everybody's at risk in there. Yeah.
2: So um, my practice, right now I, I just have a solo practice. It's literally just me. I don't even have an assistant right now. Um, I am in the process of leaving my part-time job to go full-time in my practice now. So over the next few months, I'll be ramping up to full-time, and I'm in working to get the uh, do more of the marketing with the the genetic stuff so I'm kind of able at this point to start talking to some of my colleagues and stuff about what we're able to do right now I've just been offering it to my own patients I've been really marketed it that much but I think we're to the point now where we can especially if there are multiple family members um, we've had really good success with being able to find what I think are the variants that are causing the illness or contributing to the illness, I should say, not causing it and coming up with new treatment options.
3: How did these patients find you? Was it just all referral or?
2: Well, I mean, sadly, there are very few psychiatrists, that, especially outpatient psychiatrists that will treat eating disorders. It's kind of a niche field. Um, there aren't that many in Dallas. So, you know, having worked in the field for a while, especially having worked at a treatment center, you know, I know most of the therapists and dietitians and psychiatrists, you know, they'll, so they'll, send them my way, um, but I, I have patients all over the state of <laughs> Texas, um, you know, lots of people from Lubbock and Tyler and Amarillo, right. and Austin and San Antonio, so um, there's just not many psychiatrists who like working with this population. It I think ha- uh, we could talk about that if you want. I mean, it's, sure. it's sad there are very few academic programs left. Um, so, very few residents get exposure to eating disorders anymore, and if you're not exposed to it, I think it makes people nervous because mm. there's so because of the medical side, you know, the medical complications can get serious pretty quick, and if you're not comfortable with working with the, the medical side, I think a lot of psychiatrists just prefer to avoid it, so there's just not, and, and the same goes with, like, primary care docs. People are always asking me, you know, what primary care doctor can I go to, you know, who knows about eating disorders, who can help, and I'm just like, well. Oh. <laughs> not too many. Uh, not too many. You know, but for adolescents, you know, obviously there there are a couple of good programs in Texas. But for adults, I don't know that many.
1: So, how do people connect with you if they want to ask your counsel, use your yeah, services? Yeah, I've got a website. I
2: need to update it. I have not included much on this new stuff. Um, I'm get it. now that I have a little bit more free time. I'm getting ready, but I'm. My website is precision dash psychiatry. Um, so it's it's you know there's a dash in between, which is right. Which uh, it was <laughs> I could I could have bought the precision psychiatry web domain, but it was like a thousand dollars. Yeah, we So when I got that. started, I'm like, oh, I'll just go for the dash. Oh, well, a <laughs> hyphen. The
0: dash. Well, the dash saves me a thousand dollars. Yeah.
2: So um, I'll be updating that website soon. I'm putting together some some material kind of explaining it because it is very confusing since it's not really anything that's done commonly right I, you know most people don't really understand it um i just g- gave my first talk on it the other day so i started putting together some of the some of the like figures and stuff to explain it. Mm-hmm. it but it takes a good five or ten minutes to explain to people you know most people know the gene site and you're like is that what you're You're talking about, you know, the pharmacogenomics. I'm like, eh, well, this is kind of different.
1: Do you want to spend a couple minutes trying to explain it? Because I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding out there. And if it takes a few minutes, go ahead and and take that time.
2: Um, On how we do it? The process?
1: Well, as you're trying to explain it to patients or other populations that you say you're putting presentation together for them. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, so... Uh, You know, we know that a lot of psychiatric illnesses are inherited, but that that inherited risk, there's a spectrum, and that goes from variants that are common but low risk. So so they're in a large number of the the population, but they give a, a very tiny increase in the risk of getting an eating disorder, versus ones that are rare but give you a very high risk. So the common variants, are the ones that they find in these large genomic-wide studies. The, the, there was one published for anorexia. There haven't been any for, believe me, or binge eating, but they're working on that now. So I think their top variant was in, it's in like something like twelve percent of the population and of the general population, fourteen percent I believe of the eating of the anorexia population. Uh, but again, um, again, that that accounts for like their entire study accounted for something like one point seven percent of the the variation, the genetic variation on the other end of the spectrum you then have these very rare mutations you know some of them are completely novel they've never been seen anywhere in the world before a lot of them are like one in ten thousand people one in a hundred thousand people those are the ones i look for those give you a much greater risk you know some of the mutations we found give you a 70 80 90 percent chance of getting an eating disorder um or i should restate that we see it in, you know, 70%, 80 90% of the people who have <laughs> who have the, the variant. Um, so it, the, that's what I look for. So I'm on the complete other end of the spectrum where I'm looking for these small families, these individual cases. And that's where we use the, uh, the whole exome sequencing and, and basically family pedigrees in order to see in which genetic mutations are shared by people who have the illness in the family versus those who don't. And once we narrow it down, you know, then we can have some confidence. Um, some, if we have a big enough family, we can really narrow it down to, to one, one mutation. But that's not always the case. These, you need to have about 10 family members affected in order, in order to get it, and we don't often have 10 family members. Those are pretty rare.
1: how far out can you go in that family to get 10 i mean how many generations or cousins or
2: what all We can go as far out as we need they just need to be alive so (laughs) you know a lot of times
3: i love the clarifying (laughs) that's (laughs)
2: that's great well i mean a lot of times people will be like you know you know great grandma was you know 70 pounds when she died and you know she never ate right but great grandma's dead now and we can't find her so
1: (laughs) we can't find her
2: (laughs) yeah um but cousins back when I was in the university we flew all over the country and I mean we went from boston to southern california and we flew everywhere and we would meet with people in their homes and we would get their we get their dna and meet awesome. with them and that that was the probably the most exciting exciting time of my career that's when i felt most like a scientist yeah.
1: it it sounds like you're spending the the, the joy filled times are when you're doing the genetic research so how do you how do you um decide between your clinical work and your research?
0: How
1: how are you splitting your time anymore?
2: This is all clinical. Okay. Um, everybody that I sequence now is try to find some of these variants that inform treatment. Wow. Um, like I said, we can't always do it, but I think the majority of the time it takes us in a direction where we can alter the treatment or find a treatment that works better for them. So I don't do any research studies anymore. Um, everything i do is clinical care
1: so how common is it for someone who is a patient with eating disorder to get something like what you're doing for them to get a gene connection figure out what the what the connection is between their risk how many professionals out there like you are offering this
2: i don't know anybody else is doing this yeah Wow.
1: <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. That was kind of like...
2: Yeah. I mean,
3: you said that earlier. There's I know, some research
2: but, study. There's some groups that do it for research. Right. But I don't know anybody who's doing it for research. But not
3: particular. on the streets, in the trenches, with people that are ill that need treatment.
2: No. That's pretty awesome. Because you don't get trained for this in medical school. Mm-hmm. But isn't,
1: isn't it becoming pretty common for people to offer genetics testing, or that's the goal well, that they're trying like, to
2: do? It's like... I'm talking about like eating disorders specifically in yeah. psychiatry. But yeah, whole exome sequencing is being done a lot more in you know neurology, you know, in, in cancer, they're doing a lot more okay. genetics. Um, it, so it is something that in other areas people are right. doing a lot more of.
1: No, I, I was asking that first question earlier. But it, in psychiatry, th-
2: I don't know anybody who's doing it. Mm-hmm. For,
1: for, for eating disorders. Care. Right. Yeah.
3: Well, and that was one of the questions I asked down, asked down, that I wrote down to ask was from a psych standpoint. And my involvement in this is from a nonprofit working with children with trauma from abuse. I'm endlessly curious of when you talk about environment and the genetic aspect, you know, um, do you foresee a time when uh, some of these children who've experienced trauma as a kid, they become older adults. They're about to enter into therapy a genetic test that would help guide in any way like where to start or what kind of meds. Cause I'm someone who mm-hmm. went through the trial of try this, try that, try this for years. You yeah. know? Um, now I know this is overlapping on the medical side. I mean the, the treatment side, but do you think in the future, there'll be a psych aspect of this for, am I even asking the question? Does it make sense or
2: so for trauma,
3: for trauma, yeah. people that have grown up that have trauma, do you see any advantage with-
2: I've looked at some of the genetic studies for trauma some of the ones I've come out with, like the VA and stuff mm. and those seem to be have much more variability or heterogeneity um, in part trauma is tricky because uh, you know the degree of trauma varies sure you know whether it, you know it's childhood trauma or war trauma mm-hmm. you know you know big T, <laughs> big T versus little T trauma so I yeah. I think, there is gonna be a genetic component, but I think from my reading of the literature that it's been much harder to pull out things that are consistent.
3: It makes sense. There's yeah. so many variables, I would think, you know.
2: And I, I mean, the other thing that honestly has been incredibly helpful is, you know, mice eat. And, and mice eating is, is similar to human eating. So a lot of the genes that involve appetite and body weight regulation have been identified Whereas I'm not sure for like in, in things like mood and anxiety mm-hmm. and trauma, the, the mice are not the best model. Um, you know, that's the other reason I look at sleep is you know the sleep pathways are pretty consistent between mice and humans, so a mm-hmm. lot of those have already been found that makes sense or understood. So okay. it's a lot easier for me to. There's just a much more robust literature. Sure, between breast cancer research, which is a huge field, and then appetite regulation, which is a huge field. There's just a lot more information on this kind of stuff.
3: That makes total sense. Yeah, Yeah. it
1: does. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. This is uh, on a different question, but I try to explain this to my non-professional colleagues once in a while about how when you're starting to starve yourself, you are actually changing aspects of your brain and you Get to a point where you lack the ability to make a decision to feed yourself. Yeah. Can you talk about that so that people who don't understand and say things like, I don't understand why she just doesn't eat?
2: Right. Um, there are a lot of brain changes that go on with malnourishment. There's a lot of changes in both structure and function, right? So we know that there's atrophy or shrinkage of certain areas of the brain. Interestingly, some areas shrink more than others so mm-hmm. the brain is somehow when it's starving known to preserve certain areas <laughs>
0: uh, and not yeah.
2: others um, so I, I've always found that fascinating mm-hmm. like how the brain like knows where to go for nutrients first um, you know when it's you know basically cannibalizing yeah. its own tissue for energy um, so we know that there's uh, shrinkage of certain brain areas there's smaller Neurons, fewer connections between ner- those neurons. We know that there are changes in uh, um, neurotransmitter levels, uh, especially glutamate. There's pretty good evidence in glutamate, and that, that's consistent with, with what we've researched, where people with eating disorders tend to have mutations in genes involved in glutamate synthesis. Um, so there's just depletion of glutamate. That's been shown in a few studies. So the the um, People tend to become much more obsessive. They have high levels of obsessionality. They become very rigid and have a very difficult time with uh, what we call behavioral flexibility or, or being adaptable and changing uh, what they're doing. And they kind of get locked into these very rigid behaviors that they um, have very poor insight to and are unable to change. Hmm. The other thing I'll say um, in our our research, you know, back when I was at you know Iowa, kind of contributed to some of this work, but. When, when people talk about, you know, why, why won't you just eat, right, what you really need to think about with especially anorexia is that the, there's the gas and there's the brakes, right? And everybody was looking at the gas for years. You know, everybody thought that it was just going to be the, a lack of an appetite-stimulating hormone or increase of a satiety hormone or something like that. But that's probably not the case. You know, the, the best work I've seen is that really what we're doing is we're slamming on the brakes right so there's there's this whole region of the the brain where a lot of these genes seem to cluster that's involved in telling you not to eat right which makes a lot of sense because you need to eat to live but up until the food supply was secure and safe you know only 100 200 years ago like eating could kill you right so the decision to eat was a was a big one and um you know, you needed to make sure that you didn't eat anything that was going to cause you to get food poisoning or, you know, some kind of toxin or something that was going right. to kill you. And I think what has gone on is that people with anorexia tend to have a clustering of, uh, of these variants that make them slam on the brakes. So uh, the reason yeah. they're not eating is because they literally think something terrible like death is going to occur if they eat because that is turned on all the time. So what we really need to do is not find ways to increase appetite. Most of the studies have found that they still have some appetite. It's that we need to shut off the brakes. And hopefully we will, you know, there'll be some kind of um, pathway to do that soon. I I actually have a couple of ideas of drugs we can repurpose from like cancer chemotherapy, uh, nausea medications and stuff, but that seems to be what the issue is. So it's not that people don't want to eat or that they're being willfully ignorant, but they literally have the part of the brain turned on that thinks that if I do this, I'm going to die. It's a or something terrible.
3: evolutionary echo of, of sorts. that's still kind of there with those people. Is that what you're saying? Like it's still,
0: yeah,
1: that's fascinating. I've heard other professionals say it doesn't matter. You can stimulate their appetite. They will power through and not eat. Hmm. So, to your point, yeah. it's not the gas, it's the, it's the brakes. Yeah. Now, when you get somebody renourished, if you will, and you consider them to be eating well and having a good diet or whatever, do you have any information as to how the brain reverts back? Or does it come back fully healthy again? Or is it always lacking a little bit? Talk about that as they continue to feed themselves and get he- um, healthy.
2: So... Th- that's a great question it's one of the most controversial questions um good
1: then you can answer it (laughs) well
2: i I probably don't have an answer i mean most of the things that we can look at whether it's like a you know structural of a brain mri or just you know levels of a um, neurotransmitter tend to go back to normal right but there's this huge question in the field especially the imaging field carrie would be Uh, Dr. McAdams would be a much better person to answer that question. Get her over. You know, the the question is whether or not there's the the scar of the illness left, I think is how Walt Kay puts it, you know. They do all these brain imaging studies or these functional MRI studies to see. But nobody compares before and after the illness, right, because you don't know who's going to get the illness. Right. So, you know, in theory, it would be nice if you could, you know, you need like, oh, something like 30... Thirty cases, right? So if one percent of the population gets anorexia, you know, in theory, it'd be nice to sequence, you know, sure. scan the brains of three thousand girls, <laughs> right. you know, teenage girls and boys, and then you come back, you know, ten years later after they've had the illness, and and you do it again. But nope, nobody's going to pay for three thousand brain scans. So um, what they're always doing is they're looking after people who've recovered. Um, I think for the most part, people think that those things go back to normal, but it just turns out technically to be a very hard thing to know for 100% certain.
1: So it can be cumulative where if they are coming in and out or they're lapsing, that some of the organs have... um, What am I trying to say? Atrophied. Atrophied, yeah. Thank you, Damien. So is, is is that a possibility also, which is why sometimes people... Um, die unexpectedly in their sleep or something like that after they felt like they might have been cured?
2: I was talking specifically about brain changes. Um, we think that the brain changes are reversible, you know, unless you've had like a stroke or something like that. I know less about... Well, we know that bone doesn't bounce back. Right. You know, we know the bone loss can be um, permanent. Uh, I don't know as much about like, say, heart in like sudden cardiac death and stuff yeah I, um, and I that's a good question I don't even know much about that literature so okay it, um, I think for the most part people come back but I, I could see a scenario in which you could do permanent damage to the heart. I think that's feasible, but sure. I don't. I just don't. Know. Yeah, it feels.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to take you off of that, off of the subject there, because we were talking about the brain, and that's. Yeah. But then I, I do know the, the gut
2: is the other one. You can do permanent damage to the gut, especially if you abuse like laxatives and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be damage to that, that that does not come back.
1: Wow. We've kind of covered the big gambit here. I think. Was there any subject that we said we wanted to talk about that we haven't done yet, Michael? That you, or that you would like to be sure that we include?
2: Um, well, I talked about everything I wanted to talk about. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to talk about anything else. you know, I have had a very uh, an unusually broad experience, right, going all the way from you know mouse work to human genetic research to not clinical care. Um, so I've kind of seen a broad gamut of.
3: And the field. I, I know we keep saying but that's so unusual for someone to go from mice work to human work to. I like that. That's like your slogan, from mice to men. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll give you that one for free. You can have that.
2: Well, I'll tell you, if you ever go to, like to a large uh, scientific convention, especially with like high school or college-age kids, there are a ton of, of, of titles of posters that are of, of mice and men. Oh, is there? <laughs> <laughs> they have all the time.
3: That's awesome. Well, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about doing uh, – as we get, you know, several months down the road uh, is bringing back guests because as our listeners, they're going to post questions they're going to have. So, you know, if you are available, you know, down the road, bringing you back to address some of the, uh, the listeners questions and obviously other things that we think about, uh, is something that we'd reach out, you know, probably six, eight months from now. Um, go ahead and plug your website one more time and don't forget the hyphen.
2: Yes. Precision hyphen. Psychiatry.com. Dot so com. Michael Lutter, L-U-T-T-E-R. Awesome. Um, there aren't that many in the country, so I'd pop up pretty quick. Okay. <laughs> if you type in MD. I don't think I'm the only MD.
3: That should make it easy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the time and, and coming in today. Oh, um, thank you so
2: much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about my stuff. So. No doubt.
1: Well, it's very interesting. And once again, thank you for making it understandable to people who do not have such a background and as a PhD and an MD. No doubt.
3: No doubt. Well, listeners, thank you again. Uh, we really appreciate you for tuning in. Make sure you go to channelsofhealth.com to check out the rest of our episodes, and we will see you in the next episode.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.